Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Last week, we began to take what I pray is a fresh and challenging look at the armor of God. So if you're just visiting today, then you're kind of in the middle of one. This was supposed to be a one-part message, and then last week we decided it was going to be a two-part, and then this week we're deciding it's going to be a three-part. So you're right in the middle. You're right in the second part of what is turning out to be a three-part series on the armor of God. And as I mentioned last week, the armor of God often is taken in a simplistic view or through a child's lens. And we want to be careful not to relegate the armor of God and this incredible passage in Ephesians chapter 6 to a children's story or to a coloring page, which is, for myself, the first thing that comes to mind when somebody says the armor of God. This passage in Ephesians chapter 6 is the key to victory in the life of a child of God. This passage is for the believer. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You need to come to know Jesus Christ by grace through faith. After Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about the mystery of the church, the fact that Jews and Gentiles are one new living organization or organism in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he speaks about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 here, the beginning of it, he speaks about the clear commands to believers. So it's all about commands, particularly in regards to relationships. Remember, Ephesians chapter 6 and chapter 5 is talking about the relationship between Christ and the church, the relationship between husbands and wives, the relationship between parents and children, the relationship between employers and employees. It's got all of these commands. It's the rubber meets the road Christianity. This is Paul saying, I've taught you theology in the first three or four chapters. Now I'm teaching you the practical commands for Christian living in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. And then as a conclusion to that, he gives this passage on spiritual armor which is why he starts it in verse 10 with the word finally. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord of the power of his might. Then he goes on and he speaks about take upon yourself the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Okay, So this is a final command in the book of Ephesians, and we are halfway through that final command. So that's kind of where we are at in a nutshell. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18, we see that in Christ you are a force to be reckoned with, would be the title of the message, this three-part series. That is, you are a powerful and a victorious believer in Jesus Christ. And the way to be powerful and the way to be victorious, particularly here, is that you would walk in the power of the Lord that he has provided, in verse 10, and that you would be equipped with the armor that is shown from verse 11 through the end of verse 18. You can achieve victory spiritually. As you, we see last week, as you know your enemy first, This week you can achieve victory spiritually. We're going to see as you know your standing, particularly your standing in Christ. And then next week we're going to look at the fact that you can achieve victory as you know your dependency upon Christ. So that's where we're at and where we're going. You are called and commanded to walk in the power of the Lord, in the might of the Lord, and in accordance with his power. You're called to be equipped. And being equipped means that you know who your enemy is, you know what your standing is, and you know what your dependency is is. So we've covered the first of those three points, and we talked last week an awful lot about the context of this, what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We talked about the fact that this passage is primarily defensive rather than offensive. Remember, Paul uses the word stand or withstand four times. 
that is a defensive posture. Remember as well that of the six pieces of armor the believer is to be clothed in, only one of them could be considered offensive. We are not told to take the battle to the enemy, so to speak, but we are told to brace ourselves for the onslaught, for the attack, for the arrows of the enemy. That means that we, if you're a believer, we are to expect attacks, and we are to expect them repeatedly and continually and, in a sense, perpetually until Christ returns. Not that we should be discouraged in that, because as we walk in God's strength and in the armor that he provides, we are assured victory. Expect attacks, but also expect that you will walk in victory because of the strength of the Lord and the armor that he has provided. Now last week, as I was making that point, particularly that the armor and the whole passage is defensive, I misspoke about something. I said something contrary to the word of God. So these were the words I said. We're going to get into the passage, but I need to correct the mistake that I made before we do that. So these are the words that I said. See if you can catch the error in this. We'll have a pop quiz after. I said, there is a growing faction within the church universal that sees themselves as warriors for Christ who are putting Satan to flight. You can't put Satan to flight when God has given him freedom, as limited as that may be, to cause havoc on the earth. He isn't going to flee from you. You are not called to vanquish Satan. You do not have authority to cast him into the pit. Did you catch my mistake? I said Satan isn't going to flee from you, or something along the lines of you can't make Satan flee from you, but that is completely contrary to James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there is a way to make Satan flee from you. Submit to God. Resist Satan, and he will flee. Now, the mistake was in my terminology rather than necessarily the intent of what I was saying. When you submit to God and you resist the devil, then Satan has no power over you. When you submit to God and you resist the devil, Satan has no power over you. He can't deceive you or trick you or pull the wool over your eyes when you are submitting to God and resisting him, Satan. He realizes your victory, and he hates it. So much so that, in a sense, he throws up his hands and flees. But he doesn't stay gone. And that was the point that I was trying to make, that he will continue to attack. It's not like when you were victorious in this one instance or this other instance that Satan decided, you know what, I can't tip this guy anymore, I'm just going to walk away. It isn't as if you telling him as well to go away is actually going to make him go away. Or you declaring him defeated or, or vanquished or bound actually gets rid of him. And we need to be careful in our terminology when it comes to this. You do not have the authority to stop Satan from doing what God has permitted him to do. Which namely is to test and to try believers and to cause chaos, pain, confusion, and darkness in the world. That's the authority that God has actually given Satan to do. And you don't have the authority to stop that from happening. I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but have you ever wondered why when Jesus Christ was tempted, he didn't respond the way that we would? Now, yes, he didn't respond the way in the sense that he didn't give into temptation, but he also didn't try to get rid of Satan. He didn't reject Satan or bind Satan or cast Satan or vanquish Satan or none of these things. 
Three times. I would have thought of Christ as Christ, as he says he is, as we know him to be, that of the first temptation, after he's victorious over it, Jesus sort of would have said, all right, now Satan, as he said to Peter later, which shows that Jesus was tempted again, get thee behind me. <laughs> he continued to be tempted. And three times there, and obviously as we see later in life as well, that he experienced the attacks of Satan. Three times, and yet each time, He resists. He doesn't cast him aside. It says that he used the word of God, basically. He said, it is written. Christ is victorious each time that he is tempted by using the word of God to counter the deception of Satan. That is reminiscent of that verse I just quoted from James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jesus Christ, even then, as God in the flesh, is submitting to God the Father by the word of God, and so resisting Satan, and so was victorious over him. But three times in a row, these attacks come against him, and he doesn't stop them. He doesn't say at the end of it, Satan, I defeated you. Satan, I deny you. Satan, I bind you. Satan, I vanquish you. Satan, I reject you. This is what it says at the end of the temptations of Christ. After he's been victorious three times in a row. Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Then... The devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. The devil left. Jesus didn't have to force him to go anywhere. But Satan didn't want to be around someone submitted to the will of God. You don't, you don't have authority to make Satan stop attacking you. But you do have the power and authority to submit to God, to resist Satan and his demons, and so to be victorious in the power of the Lord, clothed, in the armor of God. That brings us a long way around to the second point of this passage, the only point for this morning, is that we can be victorious in Jesus Christ. You can be a force to be reckoned with in Jesus Christ as you know your standing. So last week we looked at know your enemy, today know your standing. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 10 to the end of verse 20. Before we do that, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that even when we stumble over it, Lord, that your word remains true. We thank you that it is the revelation of God to man and that it is entirely trustworthy. And so we submit to your word and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine to us your word, that you by your spirit through your word would equip us to be the believers, to be the children of God by grace through faith that you've called us to be. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a a heart that is pliable and willing in your hands, that you would take us and so mold us that we would be fit to be ambassadors, to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We pray that in this time and in the reading of your word and the presentation of it, Lord, that you be glorified and honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. If you have heard a sermon on the armor of God, you have probably heard the illustration of the armor explained. It is usually a picture that Paul uses that is preached on. It's actually the illustration that is preached on. After we here are commanded to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might in verse 10, we are told to put on the armor of God. That would be in verse 11. And then from verse 14 to 17, we see a depiction of that equipping of the individual pieces of the armor of God. And so a typical examination of the armor could go something like this. We start with the belt. The belt holds everything together. It is the means of keeping all of the rest of the armor in its proper place. Then you have the breastplate of righteousness. So right living, because of our right standing in Christ, protects our core being. It is a breastplate. It protects our heart and other vital organs. Then you move on to, in this illustration, our feet. And we have shoes on or sandals or boots or whatever you may think is appropriate as footwear for a soldier. But it is the shoes that stand firm in the gospel and are ready to bear the gospel of peace to others. Then we have the shield of faith. So faith is like a shield. That's fairly straightforward reasoning. We can crouch behind it and we can let the enemy's attacks be absorbed by it. It can protect all of the body. That's why it says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Next, you have the helmet of salvation. This guards your brains. It guards your thinking and your seeing and your hearing as well. It is that which guards the control center of your body. And finally, you have the spirit, or sorry, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the defensive uh, and offensive part of the armor. And with it, we go out and slay our enemies, right? No, with it, we go out and we pierce the darkness around us with the light of the glory of God, according to his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 speaks of that. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division between the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God pierces right to the core of mankind's being. It discerns right down to that unknown and unseeable place of our soul and spirit and of our joints and marrow, the inner thoughts and intents, it goes on to say, and it judges and it convicts. And the idea is that this sword exposes and it reveals what is there. It brings it to the light and it holds it up against the holiness of God. This is the sword of the spirit. That is the armor in a nutshell. But as I was saying that, let me ask you something, a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about As I was briefly running through that, what captured your mind? The belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, and sword? Or truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God? This is one of those situations where the illustration tends to outshine the truth that it is supposed to reveal. This is one of those situations where the frame is so attractive that we forget to look at the picture. And instead of actually, at least for myself anyways, I'm prone to do this. I'm prone to look at the armor 
rather than actually what he is trying to say about these spiritual realities through the picture of the armor. I get caught up in the armor. And I think we're all, maybe most of us anyways, are prone to do that. What is normally accomplished through a good illustration actually here seems to be not accomplished. I know that for myself. Now, that probably would not have been the case in Paul's day. They were intimately familiar with this armor or armor of this kind, and so it was a very natural way to draw their mind to a spiritual truth. But it tends to work the opposite way for me. The armor tends to draw my attention to itself rather than to the spiritual truth which it represents. And so this morning, I want to do something a little bit different with this passage, and that is we are going to ignore the illustration. (laughs) And prayerfully, in the process of doing that, I don't do a disservice to the passage. We are going to say that this is to be, the truths that we look at, is to be the standing of every believer. And that's actually a good word to use because remember, four times it says either stand or withstand. How do we stand or withstand? By being equipped with the armor. So the armor, in a sense, is our standing in Jesus Christ. So we're going to say that this is to be the standing of every believer today and we must ensure that we stand accordingly. So this is our standing because we need to have these spiritual realities in place if we are to resist Satan. We don't just need to have a good idea about what Roman armor looked like to resist Satan. We need these spiritual realities in place. So we're going to take each one and we're going to say stand. The very first one, the belt, if you want to look at it, this armor, is that we stand in truth. Stand in truth. For me, when I hear that statement, rather than say, having your waist girded about with a belt, plate or with a, a belt of, of truth, and I go from there to just that simple statement, stand in truth. Believer, you want to be victorious in your Christian walk? You want to do what you've been commanded to do? You want to resist the attacks of Satan? Then the first thing you need to do is stand in truth. That's clear for me. The believer must know truth and stand in truth and rest in truth and work in truth and speak truth. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus is truth. So I must know him and stand in him. My confidence, my hope, my security must be in Jesus Christ. Stand. Stand wrapped in truth. Stand with all that is you and all of your equipping wrapped up in truth. Truth is that which lines up with reality. Truth is that which actually is. And God is the author and source of truth. It is all things as he sees them. It is what is right and proper and beneficial. And God has taken and has actually revealed truth in his word. Truth about himself and truth about ourselves and about life and death and sin and heaven and hell and the resurrection and about eternity. These are truths which are revealed in the word of God. Everything that he speaks, everything that he has revealed is truth. So we can depend upon it. This word can be depended upon and can be adhered to and can be lived out. We can stand in it because we stand in truth. The believer's life is to be wrapped up in truth. If you want an illustration, just take that, wrapped up in. But even simpler than that, believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, Stand. Stand in truth. Secondly, stand in righteousness. So we're dismissing the illustration for now. Righteousness as a broad definition according to Vine's expository dictionary is 
the character or quality of being right or just. We're to stand in righteousness, the quality or character of being right or just, but this is not the standing or the condition of the natural man. We know the natural man is born in sin and goes on sinning, so he is not right or just, nor is he or she acceptable in the eyes of God, who is wholly righteous, and only true righteousness is acceptable to God. So then we cannot stand in righteousness in our own nature. We cannot obtain righteousness in and of ourselves. So we have a dilemma here, except for that he knows that we know he's speaking to believers. So we can actually stand in righteousness. That dilemma is resolved, or the answer to it is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, For he made him, that is God the Father, made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father made the sinless Christ to be the sacrifice for sin, And through faith in this work of God, the repentant sinner's sin is placed upon Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is placed upon that repentant, believing sinner. That's the doctrine of imputation. My sin is imputed or applied to Christ's account. And Christ's righteousness was imputed to me by grace through faith. So now, the standing, this new standing of the child of God is righteousness. So we can stand in righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Everyone who believes, everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ is declared righteous in Jesus Christ. That is our standing. That is our position. Righteous. If that is our standing, then why are we here commanded to stand in it? Well, unfortunately, there is often a difference between our position and our practice. Our standing legally is righteous, and we need to make sure that we actually then stand in righteousness in Jesus Christ. We need to ensure that our practice reflects our position. So we go from standing or the standing of righteousness to actually stand and stand and stand in righteousness. We live and we act and we walk and we talk in righteousness. We live righteously. Or to put it even simpler, we live right because we have been made right in Jesus Christ. Stand in righteousness. Thirdly, we see that we are called to stand in the gospel. And this one here is a little bit strange. This is the illustration of your feet shod, right, in verse 15. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But how can feet be shod with preparation? It's commonly believed that it meant we were to be ready to preach the gospel or take the gospel to others. But if this passage is primarily defensive and this is defensive equipping, how does that work? The pulpit commentary says that the Roman sandal was furnished with nails that gripped the ground firmly, even when it was sloping or slippery. So the good news of peace keeps us upright and firm. So without dwelling on that illustration, we could say that We are to know the gospel and be prepared in the gospel and to be firmly planted in the gospel. The gospel is the glorious news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That brings salvation to repentant believers. 
We understand that we need to stand on that fact, the facts of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, the fact that there is salvation in no other name than in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is the gospel. It is, as well, the gospel of peace, it says here. We're to stand in the gospel of peace. It is peace because by it, mankind has been brought into right relationship with God. That is peace. Believer, stand. Stand in truth. Stand in righteousness. Stand in the gospel. Believer, stand in, the next one is faith. Does it feel weird to be looking at these without actually looking at the armor? Stand in faith. That's fairly straightforward. That's direct. That's a clear command, isn't it? We are to stand in faith. And this was, is a major one because it says, above all, taking the, for illustration, shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We are to stand in it. Now, this is not saving faith, specifically. Saving faith, in a sense, is past. It's also present, but in a sense, it's past. It is the faith that is exercised the moment we repent of our sins and trust in God to save us. Nor is this faith that we are to stand in here what is known as the faith or the system of belief or religion as as it is referred to in the word of God in different places. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5. There is now one Lord, one faith. It's not speaking about that system of faith. It's not speaking about that initial saving faith. This is faith for today. Present day, immediate situation, confidence in God and in his word. We must stand believing that God is who he says he is and that he will will accomplish what he has promised to accomplish. This is trusting God in the midst of all the hurdles of life and of the attacks of the enemy. This is the faith of which we are called to have it as the size of a mustard seed. Simply put, this is believing God. Saying, God, I believe you right now in this situation. We are to have faith. We are to stand in faith above all else as a protection against everything else. Stand in faith. To say, I believe God, I am trusting God, I am confident in God. It's no wonder that this is so essential. By it, it says, we will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one as you overcome his attacks by faith. Now, it's not faith in faith, just so you're aware of that. You can't say my faith is great, so I attacked or so I defended myself. It's faith in God. It's, so it's God that does that work. We must have. We must today, in this present moment, in your tomorrow, and however that looks, in the chaos of your life, be believing God, be trusting God, be confident in God. Stand in faith. And if you have any doubt about what that looks like, read through Hebrews chapter eleven. By faith, so-and-so, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, by faith, they went and did this. By faith, and it's got about 20 names there, I think. And it talks about incredible things that men and women did by the power of God through faith. So stand in faith. Fifthly, stand in salvation. This is a beautiful and a powerful one. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, you are secure in him. You are safe in him. You are guaranteed eternal deliverance from sin and from the onslaught of Satan. Since you are in Christ, nothing will move you. Nothing will shake you. Nothing will destroy you. You can take confidence in that. And that is what we need for today. That is what I need for today. To have full confidence in that, in God's work of salvation. No matter how heavy the battle may be today, 
God is victorious eternally, and since I am in him, I am victorious eternally. It is so much easier to fight a battle and to win that battle today, knowing that my God is victorious, and eternally I am victorious in him. When we already know the outcome and we live according to the outcome, it makes the present-day reality so that we can have victory in it. I was going to say victoriously, but that doesn't really work there. So that we can live in victory as we know we have eternal victory in him. The ultimate battle is already won. There's comfort and great hope in this. Child of God, by grace through faith, you are secure in God's salvation. You are secure in God's salvation, the helmet of salvation. Just as an interesting note here, it is not your salvation, it is God's salvation. I've been reminded of this time and time again, and especially going back to the beautiful prayer of David after his, his brokenness over sin and his repentance of that in Psalm 51, verse 10 to 12, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. At the end of that, in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Restore to me the joy of your, not the joy of my. Because if, if I begin to look at it as mine, and yes, it is your salvation. God has done that work in you if you have trusted him for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. But it is his work. And so he, we can ask him to restore to us the joy of that wondrous work that he has done in us. It is his salvation. We have much cause to rejoice in it for he has reached down. He has reached down and rescued us. And since it is his, since it is his and not yours, no one is able to take it away from you. No one is able to undo it. No one is able to destroy it. It is his work of salvation and not yours. You are secure in his hands. So stand, stand in salvation. And the last one, number six, is stand on the word. Going back to the temptations of Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, each time that he is tempted, these words are spoken by Christ. It is written. He stood on the word. In resisting Satan, he stood on the word. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the living word, went to the written word. The living word went to the recorded word and the revealed word of God to resist Satan's temptation. If you want to be victorious against the attacks of Satan, go back to the word. If, as I said, if the living word went back and, and quoted, recorded the word of God to resist temptation, should we not? If he stood on the Bible, for lack of a better term, to resist Satan, should not we as well? There is something that is divinely unique about the word of God when it comes especially to defeating the attacks against us. God takes his word and accomplishes victory through it. That is what is meant in that passage in Hebrews 4 verse 12 where it says that the word of God is living and powerful. It is living and powerful. It is not just some great piece of literature. It is not just some profound philosophy but the word of God, as given by God, the revealed word of God, is living and active and powerful. As we turn to it, this voice of God to us, and we stand in it, we can resist Satan. So stand, stand in the word of God. When an enemy attack comes against you, don't, don't negotiate with him or with it. 
Don't reason with it. Don't give it room. But go back to the word and speak the word of God. Quote what God has said. Reasoning and debating and philosophizing, arguing with Satan or with your sin nature, that's a losing battle. But go back to the authority of the word of God and stand upon it. Isaiah 55, verse 10 to 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth by my mouth. This is God speaking. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in all the things for which I sent it. Believer's Bible Commentary says, God's word is just as irresistible and effective as the rain and the snow. All the armies of the world cannot stop them, and they accomplish their intended purposes. God's word never fails to achieve its aim. So return to the word. When we have a resource like that, that is available, an implement like that, that is available to resist the attacks against us, why would we not avail ourselves of it? Stand on the word. Brings my mind to the song, Standing on the Promises. Second and the fourth verse in there, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God, by the living word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily by the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Stand on the word. In Christ, you are a force to be reckoned with. Nothing can steal victory from you if you are strong in the Lord and the power of his might, verse 10, and if you are equipped with all that he has provided you. You accomplish that victory. You are victorious as you know your enemy, know your standing, and next week we'll look at know your dependency. I hope that as we took a slightly different look at the armor of God today that you have a clearer vision of what each of these pieces of equipment that God has provided us is and that you have been able to see the truth behind the illustration and not just the illustration itself. Believer, you are called. You are called to stand and you are called to withstand and you are called to stand and having done all, you are called to stand. So stand in truth. Stand in righteousness, stand in the gospel, stand in faith, stand in salvation, and stand on the word of God. This is what God has provided to his children to stand against the wiles of the devil. So stand firm in them and so live victoriously to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have provided all that is necessary for us to be victorious against temptation and against every other form of attack or onslaught of our sin nature and of the devil himself. We thank you that specifically you have equipped us to so stand, to so be strong. And in these areas, whether it's in seeing that illustration or just in these truths that we are to stand in, Lord, God, I pray that you would drive them into our hearts, into our minds, that we would remember them. And as we receive opposition whether it's from our own sin nature or an external force, that we would be quick to say, no, I stand. I stand believing God because I stand in faith. I stand upon the principles of the word of God because I stand on his promises. I stand in righteousness. 
I will do what is right because I've been made right in Jesus Christ. Not by my power, but by the power of Christ within me. In each of these areas, God, give us, as you have promised to, the strength and the grace to stand. And having done all, to continue standing until the day Jesus Christ comes to take us to be with himself. We pray this in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.